welcome to the Evocative Exchange, where we meet with go-getters who have that X factor, a way of meeting today's challenges with bold and evocative solutions. We'll share what keeps these experts thinking, thriving, and feeling inspired in design, entrepreneurial life, healthcare marketing, and beyond. Today on the Evocative Exchange, we welcome Amy Turnquist. Amy is the double whammy for women in leadership. As the president of the Philadelphia chapter of the HBA, which is the Healthcare Businesswomen's Association, and an executive in digital tech and customer experience. Wow, there's going to be a lot to unpack there. Amy has been in the digital marketing arena for most of her career. In her current role, she helps life sciences organizations drive transformation and business growth while keeping customers at the heart of every decision. That's definitely something I like to hear more about. Uh, she's amassed expertise in so many facets of the industry, including engagement strategy and tactics, digital media, content marketing, e-commerce, and mobile app development. As well with the HBA, Amy is paving the way for equity when it comes to leadership positions for women in healthcare. She is an advocate and a role model for hundreds of women and uh, does tons of industry outreach. Amy, welcome to the Evocative Exchange. Thank you, Donna. I'm excited to be with you. And I'm excited to talk to you because, Amy, the last time I saw you, it was the middle of the night and I was watching the <laughs> awards ceremony for the Pharma Voice 100, which <laughs> oddly started at midnight. I know. Wasn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. I didn't yeah. expect to get jet lag from an awards ceremony, but it, it was it was exciting. Yes, very true. Yeah, it was exciting. It was definitely a bucket list moment for me. And I, I thought the way that they organized the event was just really unique and special. Well, you know, I was watching your interview and, and also some other interviews that you did. And I was intrigued by the way you kind of flipped the script on the conversation about the gender gap for women in healthcare leadership. You were talking about focusing on how the organization can evolve as opposed to what more can women do to advocate for themselves. And you right. mentioned unconscious barriers. I just feel like that's, it's so important if you could just explain a little bit, uh, you know, how that tees up in, in an organization. Sure, absolutely. Well, yes. Yeah, so start at just really reinforcing what you said with the work that we've done in women's advocacy and women's leadership, you know, over the years, many years ago, when this movement started, we were really encouraging women to network and, and sit in a room and talk to other women, right, about how they could change their circumstances or how they could, you know, quote, lean in um, or self-advocate more effectively to get a seat at the table. And, and like you mentioned, the focus really was on what we as women can do either to advocate for ourselves or to change to adapt to the environments that we're in. Um, and a lot of the research that has come out is, is really proving that that approach had not been very effective for us. Mm -hmm. We still have a large gender uh, equity gap, a gender pay gap. We still need more women in executive leadership yeah. roles. Um, and so we recognize that a different approach was, was necessary. And that's where you mentioned where we're really working with organizations to try to help change the environment that women are in and remove the inherent obstacles to growth and advancement rather than getting women to change themselves. Um, so when you talk about this idea of unconscious bias, 
you know, what we know is that our subconscious, you know, is looking all the time to make decisions easy for us. Um, and sometimes that can get us in trouble. So, you know, we all have unconscious bias. We all bring it uh, within our lives. We bring it to work. Uh, we don't necessarily know that we have it. That's why it's unconscious uh, and not implicit. But if you think about what this is, uh, I'm sure you've probably seen, you know, I know in my own experience, like I've been a victim of, of subconscious bias and I've actually had it myself and where think about you know, a woman who is a very successful uh, executive or manager, but has young children at home right. uh, mm -hmm. from an empathetic perspective, we could be you know, jumping to the conclusion that that person or that person might not want to take a, a big promotion that would make them relocate across the country right. um, or to be available for a role that would um, keep them working, you know, late nights and weekends potentially to do that. Um, and that's just a, a bias that we might carry thinking that women might be uh, more involved in caregivers uh, or in caregiving as a priority, even though their, their husbands and their families, they may have a very strong support network right. around them to facilitate that. So that's one example of where unconscious bias can come into play. Now, I get that the organization needs to evolve, but is there is there a specific role that you feel like men could be playing in the conversation? You said, you know, women sat with women in a room and talked about solutions. What, what, what's the conversation supposed to be like with men and women to come out with, with some ideas? Yeah, absolutely. We need to have men involved uh, in the conversation. And within the Healthcare Business Women's Association, we have a strong focus on allyship, male allyship, and really em embracing men and, and bringing them uh, to the conversation with us. Um, in many cases, men are the ones who are in positions uh, of leadership within the organizations that can act as sponsors for women, uh, or maybe they have the power where they can take a more um, uh, direct role in in advancing women or giving them opportunities within those organizations. So it's it's critical for us, and this is a, a, a new shift in our strategy with HBA that we've applied over the last few years, to, to really think of ourselves as what we call a united force for change, which involves you know, us as women working with men um, to understand ways that we can work together uh, to achieve better results within the workplace. Because it's been, it's been proven that organizations with more women in top leadership roles, better balance and better diversity, generally outperform uh, financial results from other organizations. So we have a shared business interest in working together to make that happen. Um, and within HBA specifically, that, that's a real part of our mission is to involve men. I can tell you, so Don, it's been so long since I've seen you in person, but for a while within HBA Philly before the world turned upside down with COVID, I took real pride in, in looking out in the room and seeing that 50% of the, the attendees at some of our events were men. Um, and that's really what we're looking to, to cultivate. Now, I was about to ask if there's an actual membership that that men would would take with the organization, or is the are the members just women? Uh, they know men are they pay the same membership because we're equal opportunity. <laughs> between men and women. Um, so the membership offerings are the same with men and women. Um, and we do have a growing number of men within the organization. And in fact, the president of our uh, New York chapter uh, is a man. Oh, wow. Well, that's yeah. excellent. I mean, again, it's so important even for a women's group to have that gender diversity because when we're running the organization, you need all kinds of ideas. And it just Absolutely. strikes me that this whole issue um, is really so prevalent in all of the STEM fields. And 
Yeah. There's um, there's this thing called the parity agreement, and I heard you talking uh, at a conference about that. And I just think it's I've ne I actually never heard of it before. I'd like for you to describe that and tell me, you know, like how prevalent do you think it is that this would be in a healthcare company that they'd have a parity agreement? So I think what you're talking about is the is the parity pledge, right mm -hmm. through parity.org. Right, so parity.org had started an initiative that is pretty simple in its, its concept in that it's asking everyone, executives within organizations to sign a pledge that they'll interview, just interview only even just one woman, one qualified woman for every opening that they have within their company. Um, we started, you were asking questions earlier about unconscious bias, and we know that um, generally we, we tend to gravitate towards people that look like us, that have the same opinions and validate sure. things that, that we feel, right? And so being more intentional in trying to achieve diversity by just simply agreeing to interview one woman for every open role um, is a small but effective step that many organizations can take. So we, we are seeing that. My, my hope is that we'll quickly expand beyond that where we don't have to just uh, lobby right. to have one woman, right, interviewed. Um, but more intentional balance in, in the, um, the recruiting and interview processes in the, in the workforce. I think just the fact that that exists, that there's a need to have a pledge to get at least one woman in the mix shows yeah. you the extent of the issue, right? I, I wouldn't have thought yeah. that that was, I would have thought, oh, you know, you're always going to have both genders applying for jobs in 2021. Right. I, it's hard to believe it really is. Yes, right. So, you know, it's funny you mentioned about like, you know, we haven't seen each other right in person and no one has, everyone <laughs> has Zoom fatigue, but is, do you think the virtual environment has an impact on promotability for women in the workplace? It's, it's definitely requiring a, a, an adapt, adaptation to our skills. Um, about, I think I had done a webinar early in 2020 that was all around, how do you stay visible? You know, how do you mm -hmm. be visible in this new virtual environment? Because it's, it's difficult. Sometimes in a real room, it can be difficult to be heard, right? But in a virtual room where you're with the, like Brady Bunch boxes of everybody on Zoom um, and on mute, most of the times it can be more challenging and more difficult. So I do think that it raises challenges for everyone, um, particularly in women when, when it, some cases in those rooms we're struggling to, to be heard or have our voice heard or recognized. Um, I also think, you know, it was a weird phenomenon. I'm curious to hear what you thought about this, but last year when we were in like April, do you remember and nobody had had haircuts and we were all getting a little <laughs> yes. like, we were getting a little like squirmy. <laughs> in terms of I, I was more worried about hair dye, you know, fruits. Yes. <laughs> I know it was real. Um, so it was interesting though, just, you, just made, like kind of monitoring this dynamic about men and women and, and how we adapted to it and what the pressures were. You know, I had started to write a blog post. I never actually finished it, but I, I wanted to write a blog post about this idea of the appearance apology, because I noticed during that time, women, I felt still were under pressure to show up on Zoom, still dressed to the nines, still looking like we weren't living through the pandemic, whereas my male counterparts had their um, their baseball hats on, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And they were just kind of bringing their full self to work, but women, and, and I don't know what the full reason was, whether we just didn't feel safe or if there really were different expectations, but I started monitoring every call I would have and, and see every woman would start with what I was called this appearance apology, wow. right? where we felt like we had to make amends for that. 
Um, what I think is exciting, though, is that I see that really balancing now. And I think one of the things that has happened with the Zoom culture, you know, when you have kids showing up on business meetings and your, your dog barking in the backyard is that it's really allowed everyone, men and women, to bring their authentic self to those yes. meetings. I would agree So I think that. it was a little rocky at first, but I, I think it's definitely helping uh, to balance uh, the playing field a bit. One of the things that made me think about when you first mentioned that catchy phrase appearance apology was what kind of skill building or training do you think women need uh, to succeed? And uh, I know HBA has some hot topics on education. I didn't know if that was one of them. Oh, yeah, I would love to talk about that. So just in general, with our mission with HBA, we're all around, uh, we're committed to advancing women in the business of healthcare and leadership roles. Um, and one thing that we uh, have really chosen as a pillar for 2021 to help women uh, achieve those opportunities, and in addition to what we're doing with, uh, we mentioned about how to, how to change the workforce and change the ways we work and the perceptions within the workforces, is, is really bringing educational opportunities to our members to help them explore the very real connection between advanced education and the potential for advancement in the workplace. So we know that depending on where your career goals may lead you, different types of education or advanced degrees you know, may be required at some point um, on your career ladder. An MBA might just be your ticket into the, right. you know, to the next room. Um, and so we, we've launched some, some really exciting initiatives within HBA. We are announcing this month a new partnership with uh, Drexel University, where nice. HBA members are eligible to get a 15% tuition discount on the cost of an MBA um, if they choose to pursue that program. It's, it's something we've worked on for three years. I'm thrilled to be it's able amazing. to bring it to life. I know, isn't it? Wow. What other universities are you partnering with? Um, we're also partnering with um, the Columbia Business School. They have a digital health strategy program that's actually taking place, I think, next week, um, where they're offering membership discounts as well to HBA members for that certification program. That's more of an executive offering for education. And then we're, we're going to be hosting um, what we're calling our masterclass event in April, where we're working with, again, with Drexel, also with Columbia Business School, uh, and then also St. Joe's University, University of Delaware and Temple University. Wow. And we'll be offering a, a, a five-day program of five webinars hosted by faculty where um, women can come and they can take a little dabble. They can learn about digital health. They can learn about the financial economic impact of COVID, what we see as the future trends in healthcare, um, and really get a, a wide ranging view of what these leading faculty are, are talking in their courses, talking about in their courses. So that again is, is something that's taking a few years to get together, but this is the year um, that, that we're bringing it to the members. That, that's incredible. I, I felt like a lot of organizations really stalled because of the pandemic. Either they didn't have the ability to have their big event or do fundraising. And it sounds like the HBA yeah. buckled down and got busy. <laughs> we really did. We, we knew immediately, right? We had to adapt. We were very rooted in face-to-face -face networking and education and um, even mentoring and other activities. So we had to pivot pretty quickly, but, um, but I'm really proud of how we've done it. And I think now heading into 2021, we'll bring the best of what we had from last year um, and, and bring that, you know, into you. more of an effective mix. You know, speaking of pivoting, um, you know, telehealth has been around for over 30 years and now all of a sudden 2020 brought on this huge acceptance level 
and yeah. everyone had to rush to deliver. Uh, it, it was quite yeah. the evolution. Um, and it's funny because, you know, patients who would have liked to have done, you know, something without having to travel into, into the office are now getting their way. But yeah. my question is, you think, you think that's going to be like a rubber band, Amy? And then as soon as uh, everyone's vaccinated, it springs back and the doctors are like, oh no, you have to come into the office. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't think that that trend will be driven by the doctors. Um, we'll have to see. I think, you know, last year, the, the real driving force that brought telehealth to the forefront uh, as a new way of engagement with, with between patients and, and providers was, was COVID, right? So it wasn't the right, patient, right. it wasn't the provider, it was, it was really the pandemic. Um, right. And it was formed out of necessity, right? There were still, you know, people needed healthcare um, and we needed to find a way to deliver it. And it opened the door to finally bring telehealth you know, to the forefront. Exactly. I think now what's gonna happen, I think is that the trend on what happens next is going to be driven by patients and the payers. So I'm getting, um, you know, on the patient side, you know, for us, it's a question of, we, we've seen how convenient it is if you have, you know, sinus affection and you're, you're curled up on the couch with your blanket and your, mm -hmm. you know, your, your tea <laughs> and, you know, how convenient it is not to have to leave your home when you're really exactly. not feeling well to get that type of care. Um, on the flip side, there are some things that, that are, are difficult to translate into telehealth and in that um, really more critical conditions, right? Beyond a sinus infection may require more of a personal touch. Um, even some physicals, Exactly. Like, how do you measure, how do you report your blood pressure? How do you take your vitals, you know, in that telehealth environment is something that um, we're, we're starting to work on. And I'll, I'll mention an example that I think is really pretty cool that I'm, I'm seeing happen now. But I think the patients are going to determine from a convenience factor what's where they feel safer, where they feel they're getting the best care and what the convenience is, because we're living in this, this, this world of retail health, right, where um, we Amazon now is, start, is going to start to teach us how to rethink healthcare from the customer lens and the customer Amazing. experiences that they've delivered right in retail. Um, so I think consumers are going to determine what they want and that will push that forward. And then the other piece are, are the payers, because I think the payers are seeing economies of care um, in terms of you know, how many uh, physician, how many patients a physician can see, how quickly wow. <laughs> through the process, all of those criteria. So I think that's going to be another driving force, and we'll see where that lands. And then, do I have a minute to just tell you my other cool story that I'm seeing from um, telehealth? Yeah, absolutely. I, I've actually, I felt like I could almost anticipate the story because I've been reading a lot about this, so I'm anxious to hear it. Oh, okay. Well, I'd love to hear what, what you hear as, as well, because I think the other piece that we need to start thinking through, and this is common with, um, with, with, with change, is to think of the technology as the solution, right? Whereas the technology is really just a channel to help us where I, th I think we should be thinking of this more about bringing care into the home more than bringing it to your computer screen, right? It's, it's how do we bring care into your home and meet patients where they are. Um, and one of the things that I, I thought was, was really cool is that um, UPMC, which is an insurance provider here in, in Pennsylvania, um, is working to address that gap between, you know, how do you measure vitals and how do you collect some of that information that, that the nurse or the, you know, the, the provider team used to collect in person so that you can still 
very closely replicate that experience in an effective way remotely. Um, and they just sent my mom a blood pressure monitor, right? And um, you know, of course, it was branded with their swag, which was a nice branding opportunity. But the whole idea was it was with a card about how to book your telehealth appointment, how to take your own blood pressure readings and monitor that so that you'll have that information about your pulse rate, your blood pressure, et cetera, that you can share with the physician when you meet them. So I think that's a, a, a fantastic example of how we can not just focus on telehealth, but focus on bringing the care into the homes and really empowering the patients you know, to be able to capitalize on the convenience uh, while still getting the same level of care. Without a doubt. Um, it's so funny because I said I could almost anticipate it because <laughs> I, I jumped ahead in my thinking to smart fabrics. Uh, I've been at yeah. conferences and I've been doing a lot of reading and, you know, it's coming in the future that, you know, the Fitbit and the smartwatch it actually could be, if it can be fused into fabric, there could be a constant yeah. monitoring and mm -hmm. it's very unobtrusive. So I think that plus, you know, other technologies, it really will open the doors. And I think it's funny that you said uh, it was more about the patients and the payers because the, the fact that the payers were shifted by the economies of care as opposed yeah. to the need, like, that just mm -hmm. sort of shocked me, but it's more economical to do telehealth. So of course they're gonna be on board. Yeah, yeah, it, right, exactly. I mean, it's just amazing what causes, you know, a situation to um, evolve in a certain way. And, you know, you gotta follow the money, right? So whatever yeah. we can do to make, um, I think I look from the point of the patient is accessibility, right? Um, but mm -hmm. if, if your insurer isn't going to cover it, then, then you're not going to be able to pay for it anyway. So I just think that that was so interesting um, that you use that term economies of care. Right. Yeah. Um, That's right. And at the reality then, you know, the other piece that we need to keep in mind when we talk about economies are the economy of patient outcomes, right? And that's where we need to stay focused for from the, how this impacts the patient to ensure that they, that we're not just profiting the payers, but we're profiting the entire ecosystem by helping patients get efficient care and maybe a more convenient way that creates a better experience for them that keeps them engaged you know, with their provider in a more intimate way. What are the other uh, promising delivery channels? I mean, is it a specific thing that you can talk about? I, I would say generally anything digital, right? All things digital. I think that's where we're going to continue to see the biggest innovation um, this year and in the future. I think some of the disruption that we saw in 2020 will last um, and have ongoing effects well into the future. So. I, I work with, um, you know, just even through you know, my network and, and what I do at work, we work with pharmaceutical companies that are really exploring this whole concept of you know, digital transformation in terms of uh, digital health and digital engagement and experience and, and how that can come together to, uh, you know, to, to empower patients and ensure that they have the information they need to play a positive role in their own care and their outcomes. So I don't know exactly, I mean, telehealth, it's gonna be definitely interesting to watch um, but generally, I'm hearing across the board that this idea of pivoting to, you know, from a client-centric lens, but pivoting to a digital-first mentality for um, communication and engagement, I think that's, that's going to be a focus for um, almost everybody this year. You know, I think the place it really is going to make a difference and already is, is mental health. 
the yes. Olympic gold medalist Michael Phelps uh, is doing mm -hmm. a lot of promotion around having uh, people come into. Is it called Mindshare or Mindspace? I'm forgetting. Yeah, uh, but yeah. Um, but <laughs> I look. I I actually logged on because I thought, wow, this could be a, a major solution. There's so many people right now who, because of the isolation, are having for the first time ever, you know, emotional distress. And so mm -hmm. when I logged onto the website, I was blown away because it was like a carousel of providers. And so I had the ability to go and pick someone who immediately based on their bio, their appearance, whatever, made me feel yeah. comfortable as if they would be the best sort of provider. And to think that a patient would have that kind of choice, that is completely yeah. turned around from where we were just a, a little over a year ago. Yeah, ab absolutely. It's exciting though, isn't it? Uh, I think it's really exciting. Anything that advances uh, preventative or uh, like more immediate treatment for people. I think, yeah. again, if you want to look at the cost perspective, the sooner somebody gets help, the sooner that, you know, they're not going to escalate in that issue. So, yeah. Um, right. yeah, so hopefully all good things in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's an interesting example that you share with mental health. Mm -hmm. um, there are, you know, these protected areas in care, like mental health, sexual health, and cancer, right. um, where we're very sensitive on, you know, what data we collect and how we communicate with patients. But those are the areas where I'm seeing a real shift also, again, into bringing communication or engagement in the home where, where patients feel more protected. Um, so we're seeing even, um, and again, in the disruption area, like where you can go online and you can have an appointment with somebody in the privacy of your home or on your phone and get a birth control prescription, for example, um, or other products in those three, those, well, not so much for cancer, you need to meet with your oncologist, <laughs> right. but in some of those sensitive areas where you might be uncomfortable talking to people um, or even uh, hesitant to go see a physician, they're making it very easy now to just set up your, your phone appointments and have a prescription called in from that remote environment, which I think feels safer for a lot of patients in those, those protected spaces. I really think that that, um, that really plays to the newest generation because I see a lot of advertisements on late night TV and it's all young adults that are saying, oh, I'm on the treadmill and I just ordered my birth control. And then <laughs> exactly, the, exactly. the advertisement right. for the Smile Club comes on. Well, I sent both my kids to the orthodontist. It was a, a three-year ordeal. And now yeah. you could go on an app and you could get Invisalign and you'd never even have to go for, you know, go yeah. into an office. I mean, I think that I think it's just amazing. And again, that's definitely answering to the generation that grew up with technology. They've never yeah. known an encyclopedia or maybe having <laughs> to go to the library, right? So yes. of course that's going to be pushed through from the patient perspective. Yes, exactly. The other thing that's interesting from that perspective, that generational perspective though, is the, the whole idea of having a relationship with one primary caregiver or care provider. Right. Um, is also a different thought for them. So it, that's going to be another challenge. I think we'll see um, pharma and healthcare and generally really having to focus on is still this integration of data um, and making sure that we can make better informed decisions um, across each step of the journey, right? Not just looking at one individual interaction at a time. Well, th that's my big question. So 
Um, I've been looking at artificial intelligence through the partnership for artificial intelligence and automation in healthcare. And that group started up in 2018 to try to pull through what the American Telemedicine Association had been doing with telehealth. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I mean, my question is, the data is there, right? So right now the individual doctors have your chart, but the ability to upload that to the cloud obviously is there. And then having the data be anonymized and be shared across every uh, scientific or medical forum, that right. is where I feel like you start to get those um, opportunities to find out diagnoses a lot easier. And so if someone is not necessarily just with one family physician, if, if they can access their records sort of in the cloud and, and, you know, and then all of those remedies are available, no matter which doctor's treating them. Like, I think we've got a, a whole thing happening here. And I know you've done a lot with data and my, you know, my question is like, is this really possible? Is this, are the security and privacy concerns addressable? And, how far off might we be from, you know, just complete access, maybe from our phones even? Yeah, I wish I could answer the how far off are we question. Yeah. I think, is it doable? Um, of course, it's doable. We have technology right. in the retail sector that is is doing this type of thing and aggregating. Think about what American Express does in terms of what they know about you right now. The, exactly. the key thing with, with healthcare in terms of use of data is all around consent, Yep. Uh, and, and obviously, as you know, privacy. Uh, and that's where I think really the, the patients and consumers at some point are going to have to stand up and say, I want this because they exactly. see the value in it versus feeling like they need to be protected from somebody having too much information. That's a huge, a, a huge transformation uh, in terms of uh, expectations, cultural and trust that we'd have to really embed in the healthcare system. But, but you mentioned too, you said the data is there. Right. But where is it? <laughs> so the challenge is, you know, and you mentioned also this idea of smart fabrics, right? Think about all the data pieces, oh, yeah. the points of data that we can be collecting now yep. um, that don't really go anywhere, right? And I, I just heard some, and then, how, you know, how, what do we, how do we want to use that once we have it? Um, so how do you make it beyond just collecting data, but to collecting actionable insights that you have consent from that patient to use to improve their care? Um, and I had heard somebody just talking the other day, I forget who it was, but they said, it's just crazy that we can send pictures back from Mars, but we can't send your medical record across the street. Oh my you know, goodness. <laughs> so we know that, I guess, back to your question, is it possible? We know yes. it's possible. The technology is there. What really, you know, kind of, it goes back to where we were talking about keeping people at the heart of these decisions with change and transformation initiatives is it's, it's really that it's, it's how do we get to a point where people um, demand more, they feel safe giving consent. Um, and then how do we marriage that up or marry that up with the, um, the technology that we know can drive you know, improvement in care. So that's what you're doing professionally now. You have a new role. Can tell us a little bit about that? Yes, thank you. So I'm, I'm working with uh, North Highland. So we are the leading change and transformation consultancy, uh, where my goal is to work with life science companies, um, all around making sure that we can help them make change happen, while keeping, you know, people at the heart of those, those, those decisions. Uh, so as I was just mentioning with healthcare, and just in general, I mean, you know, it's, it's easy to think that a technology solution or even a process solution is the answer um, to, for change and transformation. Um, and in healthcare, this is such a big idea a bit, or big priority because 
our entire ecosystem was disrupted, <laughs> right? Last Without year. a doubt. <laughs> but, um, but what I love about the, the business that I'm in right now and what we're doing for our clients is that we're, we're really helping them think through, you know, what is the impact of your culture um, and your people and your talent and how, how do you know, how do they work and how do we need to start initially to even transform them to help ensure results long-term from these change and transformation efforts. So really thinking through, instead of just saying, here's your, here's the technology we're going to implement in, you know, 60 days or six months, whatever it is, but we'll start with saying, maybe let's do empathy maps, right? Within your workforce, wow. who are the people that need to be around this change and how can we better understand them to put those processes into place to better serve our end clients in the long run. So it's pretty exciting stuff. That's amazing. What, who's your typical customer? We work specifically, we have um, North Highland in general is, is works across many, many industries. Um, I'm specifically focused in the life sciences industries um, and life, life sciences industry uh, and working with pharmaceutical companies um, everywhere from uh, the you know, marketing elements, the brand or above brand elements to clinical research and development uh, to HR and organizational dynamics and development within those companies, but all around the goal of you know, driving change and transformation uh, so that we can better improve the, what we offer for uh, the healthcare industry overall. How do we impact patients at the end of the day? I, I couldn't think of a better person to be in that role than you, Amy. <laughs> Thank you. I agree. I'm loving it. It's been great. I mean, with all of your experience and your volunteer work, it's no wonder people consider you a role model. I know I certainly do. I've referred several uh, women in transition to the HBA, and you've been personally incredibly supportive of them. And, you know, I just yeah. think other people might want to know how they could access you. Like if, if someone wanted to know more about the HBA, what, what would they do uh, to contact you personally or to, to look at the group? Yeah, I would love it if uh, if anyone was interested in, in reaching out to, to connect or network or talk about or brainstorm on any of the things we've just talked about in the last 30 minutes. I'd love it if they could reach out uh, to me on LinkedIn. Um, okay. So I'm on LinkedIn as Amy Turnquist and um, my middle name or my maiden name was Stasco. If that shows up, you'll, you'll recognize that. But if anybody is interested, please connect with me on LinkedIn. We could do a virtual coffee date, maybe schedule even 15, 20 minutes and just um, get to know each other, brainstorm on how we can support each other and, and find shared interests moving forward. Be, I'd, I'd really enjoy that. And, and what about the HBA, Amy? Is there a website? Yes. Yeah, so if you reach out to me, I can connect you. But if you're eager to get information like right now, um, you can go to the website. It's hbanet.org is our website. Um, and on there, they have information about all of the chapters. We are a global organization. I believe right now we have over 12,000 members wow. uh, as part of the organization. So if you go on that website, you'll also see links to uh, reach out to local chapters, local leadership, um, and, and even sign up to, to activate your membership. So everything that you would need to learn more is there. Well, we'll be sure to put both of those links in the notes with the podcast so that, as you said, if people want to get um, right to that, they can just click. That would be great. Thank you so much. Well, Amy, this has really been informative and I so appreciate you taking the time with, you know, all that you're giving already to the community. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. This has been the Evocative Exchange that explores people and businesses that have that X factor. 
that keeps you inspired and focused on what's possible.